Well, hello, everybody. Thanks for tuning in to another episode of the Heart of Flesh podcast. Uh, if you listen to the, l- the latest couple episodes, we are in the middle of a series on um, the doctrines of grace, as they're often referred to. Some people also would refer to them as the five points of Calvinism um, or just Calvinism generally. And I am I'm joined here again by by uh, uh, Pastor of River City, Devin Hiller. Um, he was on, on the last couple of episodes as well. And as I mentioned then, he is uh, a pastor at the church that Joshua and I go to. And also kind of the pastor in charge of our uh, education in, in the program. Um, so yeah, we are, we are glad to be doing another episode here. And in this episode, we are going to be actually diving into the, doctri- into the doctrines of grace. Um, so often how these are, are uh, memorized is with an acronym, TULIP. Okay, um, and, and the five points are, are, are basically summarized. Uh, the T being total depravity, U, unlimited election, L is limited atonement, I is irresistible grace, and P is perseverance of the saints. So uh, that, that's just kind of a helpful, helpful device to memorize them. And, and as we start this, you know, we're going to be in, um, we're going to be in total depravity. Now, <coughs> before we jump into that, wha- what we're doing when we're talking about we're, we're talking about the depravity of man, uh, as the Bible does. And what we're doing is we are, we are kind of discussing a biblical anthropology, okay? And that, that's kind of a big word, but, but uh, it comes from two Greek words, anthropos and uh, logia, which means, um, anthropos means man, and logia means, you know, study, basically. And what, what we're doing is we're taking a, a, a biblical look at uh, fallen man and, and the condition of fallen man. And it's important that we get our, our understanding of humanity from the scriptures. And, <coughs> you know, you know when, we l- when we look at the Bible, when we look at what the Bible says about God, first of all, when we, when we read the first chapter of the Bible, we see that man is, and when I say man, I mean humanity broadly, but man is created in the image of God. He's created in the image and the likeness of God. That means he, he, he was he was created as the pinnacle of God's creation. So, so human beings naturally have, because they're made in the image of God, have inherent dignity, worth, and value, right? They have inherent dignity, worth, and value. And that, that applies to every single human being. And God also gives us the, the, the dignified task uh, of, uh, and, and the command to be fruitful, to multiply, the, to fill the earth. Uh, and to have dominion over the earth, to rule over the earth, um, to, to rule over the other creatures of the earth. Man, man is unique in his role and in his task in the earth. And, w- you know, th- the scriptures do something um, that, that other worldviews and, and other philosophical systems cannot account for. They, they uphold the dignity of, of every single person a- and even emphasize at points the dignity of... Um, Weaker people, disabled people, um, y- you know, in our day you can think about unborn people, uh, people of different races, people of different colors, all of those things. The Bible upholds the, the absolute dignity of, of every human being. And if we, if we remove the image of God from our thinking, we have no basis to think of humans as a dignified uh, image of God creature with inherent dignity, worth, and value. And now on the flip side... You know, that, that's where we start. That, that, that's, 
that that forms the basis of who man is. But it, but as we look at today, you know, we talked about um, in previous episodes the fall of man, and we're going to talk about the extent to which that has affected us. So we were made with this glorious purpose. We were made in the image of God. All of this, but mankind has fallen. Um, now the, the the image of God is still upheld in us, that dignity, worth, and value, but but sin has entered the world and affected us, right? So as as we study this and we study the effect of this, um, we need to remember first of all that the dignity uh, of man being made in the image of God—that's where our dignity comes from. But now we're also going to look at what the Bible teaches about mankind in our fallen condition, and, and you know, hopefully as we go through this, that's going to be a humbling thing. Uh, and, and it's meant to be. So when we um, talk about total depravity, we're going to try to define it a little bit and then hopefully demonstrate it. So first of all, uh, just some historical context. Devin, you want to fill us in on a little bit of that? Yeah, and uh, it's good to be with you again, dear brother. Yeah, so just remember that all of this has a historical context. And before we even get to the Reformation historical context that we talked about last time, when it comes to total depravity, uh, this started, or at least debates about this started well before the Reformation. Uh, The first well-known debate uh, about the doctrine of total depravity, uh, even though they wouldn't have probably labeled it that, was between Augustine and Pelagius in about 400 AD. And Augustine said that uh, salvation was 100% the work of God, grace, and 0% effort. Well, where Pelagius held that, um, it's not always, but it can be 0% grace and 100% effort. And in terms of uh, how the church responded to that, um, at the Council of Carthage in 418, Pelagianism, which was named after Pelagius, was firmly denounced. Uh, it was rejected as heresy by the church. Um, it was also rejected in the Second Council of Orange in 529. So this this is historically heterodox or heresy. Mm-hmm. Later on, um, the idea of semi-Pelagianism came out, and semi-Pelagianism is, as you can imagine, semi-Pelagius. And what that means is that there was a doctrine of original sin, um, but there each human had, if you want to think about it, an island of righteousness inside of them. Um, they're not completely dead in sin, but very sick. Uh, j- and we have just enough good in us to cry out for divine mercy. And so um, semi-Pelagianism is 99.9% grace and 0.1% effort and functionally speaking it placed the effort as the final vote or the deciding factor in terms of salvation and uh, semi-Pelagianism was also denounced as heresy by the church so we got to keep that in mind uh, that these were debates and discussions and things that were going on well before the Reformation now when we get to the Reformation and um, Jacob Arminius we have to remember what we talked about last time, and that's a doctrine of, of middle knowledge, which uh, you can go back and listen to that. But in summary form, middle knowledge is that man chooses God independent of God's will. 
So God chooses man because man chooses God first, and that is independent of God's will. And this is the core distinction when we're talking the differences between Arminianism and Calvinism, at least historically. So uh, the nuance and the difference essentially between the Reformed view of total depravity and the Arminian view of uh, total depravity. Um, in the Arminian view, um, this is what I read last time, and I got to apologize. I thought it was the official statement of the Remonstrance in 1610, but it's just a summary of that. Um, but I'll read it again. In, it says that man is so depraved that divine grace is necessary unto faith or any good deed. So this is the, the Arminius position historically. And their nuance is that through the cross, universal grace is given to every single person so that they can overcome depravity. And therefore, every single person has the option and the choice to choose independent of God to either accept or reject the gospel. And just keep that in mind as we talk, as we give our definition of total depravity, uh, you can see the slight nu nuance of there. Um, so, yeah. Yeah. So, so essentially this comes down to uh, really a couple questions. First of all, how much has sin, sin actually affected us? And, you know, you see with Pelagius, uh, you know, he essentially denies the doctrine of original sin, which, which the church outright calls heresy mm -hmm. pretty much from the start. Mm -hmm. Uh, but as you progress, you know, you want, there, there's, th there becomes kind of different definitions of original sin and different extents to which it, that it has affected us, right? And the question then becomes, like, like who, is, who is the responsible party ultimately for the salvation of a person? Or, or where, does that, where does that decision rest? Is it ultimately in the sovereign mercy of God? Or is it ultimately, ultimately in the sinner, you know, making a choice uh, somehow attaining to e either the rational capacity or, or the reason or, or some ability essentially to save himself. So, so that is a bit of the question. Now, when we begin to define total depravity, you know, first of all, one thing that we're not saying and the reform view is not saying is that uh, total depravity doesn't mean that we are as evil as we could be. And that's not what it's saying. It's also not saying that we are entirely incapable of doing any good thing from a human perspective. That's not what it's saying. But what it is saying is that because of the fall, that sin has corrupted every aspect of our being, so to speak. So sin affects every part of us. So our, our minds are affected by sin, our ability to reason, um, our affections are, are corrupted by sin, our desires are affected by sin, our will or, or our volition is affected by our sinful nature. And because of this, in our fallen condition, um, you know, cor corrupted by sin in every part, we are unable and unwilling to come to God and be saved. We, we, are, we are by nature rebellious toward God uh, in our condition. Now, as we think about, you know, you know one thing I mentioned there is, is, is our will has been affected by this. And when this... Like, like, historically, this doctrine has kind of been, been pitted against some idea of, like, human free will and, and ability to, to do good and to choose God and all of those things. And what I, I think a common misconception of this is the Calvinist is not saying that sinful man doesn't possess the ability 
to act according to his desires, right? It, it's not that we don't have the, the freedom of choice to do what, what, what pleases us and to act according to what we want to do. The, the, what the Calvinist is saying, though, is that those desires have been corrupted by our sinful nature. That, that by nature, our minds, our desires, our will is sinful. Yeah, and to use an illustration that I've heard before, you can think about it like this. If we, if I have sitting before me a bowl of chocolate ice cream and a bowl of vanilla ice cream, I have the free will to choose what I desire. And in that case, I would choose vanilla probably every time because it's better, in my opinion. Yep. Now, if I had the choice between vanilla ice cream and a bowl of manure, and let's just say for sake of illustration... Vanilla ice cream is Christ, and manure is not Christ. What we're saying by total depravity is that because I am dead in my trespasses and sins, which Ephesians 2, 1 makes very clear, I cannot choose the vanilla ice cream in this sense. That is Christ. But I would every single time choose manure because my mind, my heart is tainted by sin in every part and I look at that bowl of manure my sin and I think it's better than Jesus yeah I've heard I do like not want to choose Jesus on my own yeah I've heard it like uh it's like it's like if you put a rabbit before a rabbit if you put like uh you know a, a head of lettuce and then the other side you put a ribeye steak you know if you ask me obviously one's better than the other but like if you're a rabbit what are you going to choose you're going to choose the lettuce. Yeah. And, and in that case, if this represents sin, that, that's what's going on. That, that's what a rabbit does. Uh, it's his nature. By, by nature, that's what he desires, right? So, so sin, the, the point of it is that sin has corrupted our ability to um, think. It's corrupted our ability to reason. It's corrupted our, our ability to choose. And, and, to, and even, even our, our desires have been affected by the fall and, and by this sinful nature that we inherit, right? Um, now, you know, before we really go a little bit further, I, I just want to make a note of this, too. This is, this is a distinctly Christian doctrine. Th this doctrine of original sin or, or, or total depravity is, is distinctly a Christian doctrine. If you look at the other religions in the world and the other philosophical systems of the world, there is no other world religion that teaches this idea. And that's important. Mm -hmm. and, and as we think about that, um, you know, you know, when we believe the Bible is the or, or Christianity, biblical Christianity is the only true religion in the world. It, it excludes all others, meaning that all other religions are invented by men, and so they seek to glorify men. Hmm. And in every case of of false religion, you know, you can essentially boil them down to the same kind of the same idea. Mankind possesses some good inherent in themselves or somehow is able to do something or to follow some system where they can we can please God and, and be rewarded by God S so so there there is something we can do uh, inherent in ourselves that pleases God that 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 brings us salvation there's some way that we can just manipulate God into rewarding us for obedience to certain actions 
And in any system like that, what you have is that man is glorified instead of God. And God is not a gracious savior, like we read in the Bible. God is not a gracious save God, God is not a gracious savior. And instead of getting mercy and love from God, God is basically some sort of impersonal judge, or he's like a boss that, that pays his employees what they're due. You know, the, it, it, in any other system, it is not based on the mercy and the grace of God, but instead, and, and it has really no place for the love of God, but instead it is God rewarding for what you do properly. Um, it, you know, like I said, it, it's impersonal, and, and God becomes basically, basically a, a boss doling out wages to, to the people who have earned them. So I, I think that's that's an important thing to recognize in this. And, w- and when we look at our when we look at our sinful condition, when we have a, a proper view of man in the Bible, we're going to see that God is a gracious Savior, and we're going to understand hopefully the the depth of the love of God that has called us out of this condition and into fellowship with Himself. Mm-hmm. So, you know, and those I just want to add ahead. that like when you're talking about other religions, it misses the point of God's holiness. That God is holy, holy, holy. There's no way that there's anything that we can do to live up to his standard of holiness, even for a second, without his grace. Yeah. So not only do we misunderstand who we are, our anthropology, we misunderstand who God is, which is wrong theology. Yeah, it is. So, so it's important that we get both of those things right. Mm-hmm. So um, what we're going to do now, we're going to look at this doctrine um, in the Bible, and hopefully we're going to see that it, that it that it permeates all the way throughout the Bible. Um, and hopefully you have not come here necessarily just to listen to us or our opinions, but but to hear from the scriptures. So that's what kind of we want to do. Now, uh, a few ways to do this. I'm going to start um, just to show how pervasive this is throughout the scriptures. I'm just going to go into the book of Romans, and we're g- I'm, I'm going to slowly work kind of through some sections in the first eight chapters. A- and I hope that we're going to see you know, we're, we're going to see what Paul says about uh, his view of, of, of man, basically. Okay, so as we look at, you know, really really Paul's argument in Romans, that's important to keep in mind. Uh, really, the, the first three chapters are going to be about Paul establishing, one, the universal nature of sin. Uh, that, that all are sinners and all are, are under sin, basically. So I just want to note a few things that Paul says about... Uh, humanity in general. First of all, Romans, we're going to start in Romans 1.18. So Paul says, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. So, uh, actually, I'll go to verse 19. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. So there's this knowledge uh, that all of us have about God. We talk about that. That's kind of natural or, or general revelation, but we, we know this truth about God and naturally what we do with it is suppress it for the purpose of unrighteousness. We, su- we suppress the truth that we know um, and, c- and continue t- to, to walk in unrighteousness. Uh, verse, verse 21, it says, Although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. A- and that's really, you know, this is a picture of what sin does. And... The fact that every part of us is affected by sin. Uh, notice that Paul t- says they became futile in their thinking. 
and their foolish hearts were darkened. Verse 22, claiming to be wise, they became fools. So even at the level of our, of our minds and our intellect and our ability to reason, we are affected by sin. Now as we go to Romans 3, uh, this is a, a really heavy-hitting passage. Um, I'll start in verse 9. Uh, you know, Paul, Paul, here's where he's really arguing the universality of sin. He says, are we Jews any better off? No, not at all. We have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, or, or you know, rather both Jews and Gentiles, which really means everybody is under sin. And he says, as it is written, um, and he's going to rattle off some Old Testament quotes. He starts this way. None is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good. Not even one. So we got to see there. Uh, what Paul is saying. Paul is saying that in, in the eyes of God, there is none righteous. There is none that does does good, that meets God's standard of righteousness, and there was no one who seeks God. By our nature, we are not God-seekers. We seek to replace God with false gods and often to, to put ourselves in the place of God. Uh, that That is the, the degree to which sin has affected us. There is none righteous, not one, no one who seeks God. Th- that's important in this question. There is no one who seeks God. We are, we are depraved to, to that degree. Uh, Romans 5, a couple chapters later, um, I'm going to start in, in verse 6. Paul says, For while, while we were still weak, at the right time Christ got, died for the ungodly. And that word weak, it's actually it's a Greek word, asthenes, and it basically means like, like impotent. Like it, it, it's talking about our, our, our ability. So while we were still weak at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. Then it says, for one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God Verse 10, for if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. So, so God hasn't gone out to rescue neutral beings and to reconcile them. Christ came to save enemies. He, he, he came to save people hostile to him. And that's, that is how God demonstrates the greatness of his love and the greatness of his mercy while we were yet enemies of God, doing things our, our own way, not seeking God, uh, f- foolish and futile in our thinking and, and darkened in our hearts, Christ has come to, to seek and, and to save the lost and, and to save his enemies. Now, Romans 8, this is probably the, um, probably the real kicker. In this, in this section, Paul is contrasting those who are in the spirit versus those who are in the flesh. Uh, and when Paul talks about the flesh, that's maybe a bit of a weird word for us, but he is describing this sinful nature. T- t- to be in the flesh is to be operating according to the sinful nature. To be in the spirit, on the other hand, is, is to be, as we've talked about on here, to be born again, uh, to, ha- to have the spirit of God in you, to be regenerated. Uh, th- that's kind of the contrast that Paul is drawing on. So in verse, I'll start in verse 7. This is Romans 8, verse 7. 
uh, listen to the way that Paul describes uh, the one who's in the flesh versus the one who's in the spirit. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. I, wa- I want us to notice that. First of all, the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God. It's resisting God. It does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Part of the definition we gave earlier, we said that in our sinful condition, we are unwilling and unable. We do not and we cannot. Please, God. But listen to verse 9. You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit. If, in fact, the Spirit of God dwells in you, anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to him. Now, that makes clear uh, one point, first of all. To not have the Spirit is to be in the flesh. There, there's no neutral or middle ground. Uh, it, it is in the flesh, in the sinful nature, or in the Spirit. In the flesh is hostility to God. Um, the, the mindset on the flesh is, is, is death, as Paul says, and it does not submit to the law of God. It cannot. It is bent towards sin and rebellion. Uh, but but the introduction of God's spirit changes that. So th- so that's just a quick run through in Romans, and and that is very brief. Um, that there is there's more that we can talk about. I'm going to go to First Corinthians, uh, th- the book of First Corinthians, the next book in the New Testament. And, and I hope you're seeing just kind of how 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 pervasive this is. But uh, well, well, as we look at First Corinthians chapter one, there's a huge section on Paul contrasting the wisdom of God and the wisdom of the world, and how the, car- the cross of Christ runs absolutely contrary to human wisdom and human ways of thinking in general. And then in Romans 2, Paul, again, is describing the difference between the person in the flesh and the person in the spirit, and, it's, and specifically how that, how that affects even the mind. Um, so in verse 14, uh, 1 Corinthians 2.14, Paul says, The natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him, and he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. So the natural person, uh, again, that, that is a person in the flesh, as Paul talks about, the person without the Spirit. The natural person in our natural sinful condition does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him. And he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. He is, he is unable and unwilling to understand them. And, and the, the message of God, the message of Christ crucified, uh, the message of Christ is the absolute Lord of the universe to whom we should submit in every aspect of our life. That message is folly to the, to the unbeliever and to the mind that is set on the flesh. It is foolishness. Uh, to, to even consider that. The natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God. Um, I, I have, you know, I heard a, a good analogy of this, and this helps describe total depravity, I think, just in general. But Michael Kruger used this analogy. Uh, he said that, he said that it, it is like, uh, it, it is, it's, like r- it's like radio waves. Like you have a, a radio transmitter that sends out a signal, and you have a radio receiver that receives a signal. And in this case, you know, you know, we think about, you know, you know, God's word and, and the way that God reveals Himself in nature and our conscience, 
um, in our hearts and, and through his scriptures and the preaching of his scriptures. It's like a radio transmitter sending out radio waves. They're going out. There's nothing wrong with, with God's word. There's nothing wrong with um, the way that God has revealed himself in the world. In the world, the radio transmitter works just fine. But the message does not get received because the radio receiver is malfunctioning and it's broken. There, there is something, there is something wrong inherently with it. And it's not the fault. It's not the, it's not the problem with the radio transmitter. The message gets out. God is revealed in nature. It is undeniable. And he's revealed in the scriptures and he's revealed in the human conscience and in our moral reason. And God is revealed to us in so many ways. But the problem is that we take that truth and we suppress it. Because in our, in our sinful nature, we are like a malfunctioning radio receiver. Sin has affected our minds. It's, it's affected our hearts. It's affected our desires and our wills. We don't want godliness. We don't want holiness. We want to do our own thing. That, that is the, the nature of the condition that we find ourselves in. So, so that, that is a few... Um, just some, some, some quick passages kind of describing that. Uh, you know, as we think about this a little bit further, um, Scripture in, in other places, the other thing it does is it uses analogies to describe the condition of sinful man. Uh, you know, like you mentioned in Ephesians 2, one analogy that Scripture uses to describe us is it says that sinful man is like, it's, is, is like, a, is like being dead. Like that, our, our condition is like is like likened to that of being dead. So if if we look at Ephesians two, and I mean one right right before this, Paul gives this remarkable uh, chapter one of Ephesians, this remarkable passage about all of the blessings that are given um, to the people of God, all that all that 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 comes to them, the blessings that are theirs that are ours in Christ, all that God has done and all that He will do is a wonderful passage, but uh, Paul begins chapter 2 by saying, and you, ta- talking to those same Ephesians who have all these blessings in Christ, he says, and you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of our body and the mind, and we're by nature children of wrath like the ma- rest of mankind. So Paul, talking to these Ephesian believers, says of them that formerly they were dead in trespasses and sins. And he includes even himself in that. He says, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body. Again, there's that word desires. Our desires uh, have been corrupted and, and the mind. And we're by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Verse 4, but God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. Paul, er, uh, God made us alive even while we were dead in our sin. And, you know, that the analogy that Paul's using, that of, of being dead, is intended to convey uh, a our condition. It's intended to convey uh, the condition of our hearts, essentially. Yeah, and if I could just 
this goes all the way back to Genesis 2. Um, and, you know, we're just looking at New Testament passages right now. But this idea of total depravity is rooted in all of Scripture. And even this analogy of being dead in sins is what God said would happen if Adam and Eve ate the fruit of the tree, that they would surely die. And theologians throughout church history have agreed that, that when they took the fruit, they ate, and they died spiritually. That is, they were kicked out of the garden and out of the presence of God. And then death came into the world through them. You can read Romans 5, 12 and following, which describes that. So this idea of being dead in sin is a New Testament idea, but it's rooted in the very creation and fall of humanity. Yeah, uh, it's, it's, a, it's an immediate spiritual death and separation from God and an impending physical death. Um, you know, like, like Paul says, we, we, all die bec- we all die because we all sin mm-hmm. and because our first parents sinned. Uh, and that is, that is how death has been introduced into our world. Um, but, but God, basically. A- and the promise and the hope for us is in spite of this sinful condition, like Ephesians 2.4 says, is that God being rich in mercy um, ha- has rescued us out of this a- and promises to give us, to give us life in Christ. You know, I, I think another example um, of just the, the analogy of being dead and, and throughout the whole Bible, if you look at, if you look at Ezekiel, uh, especially Ezekiel 37, uh, Ezekiel has this vision of the valley of dry bones. So he, he's in this, this valley uh, of dry bones. He sees basically all of these, all of these dead bodies around him, and, and the, the dryness of the bones is indicating that, that they've been long dead. Uh, it, it's indicating... A, uh, a serious picture of 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 their condition, but God tells Ezekiel uh, in Ezekiel thirty-seven to to, to prophesy or, or to speak the word of God to these bones, and He says that that they will live. And in Ezekiel's vision, He does that, and uh, it says that the bones come to life, and then He puts breath in them. Breath being the same Hebrew word as spirit. He he puts spirit in them, and it says that they stand up and they live. Verse 10 in that passage says, So I prophesied as he commanded me, and the breath came into them, and they lived and stood on their feet, an exceedingly great army. And, and just before that chapter, you have Ezekiel 36, where it's talking about uh, God, God giving a new heart uh, and putting a new spirit. And, and following this, that picture of the Valley of Dry Bones, that's that's the way in which this is going to happen. And, and even in that, even in, in Ezekiel 36, 26, which is what this podcast is named after again, God says, I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit in you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. So the, the, pr- the problem with man is not, is not, it's not just that he sins, but it's that his heart is like a heart of it's like a heart of stone in this case. And what needs to happen is that God is going to remove that heart of stone and replace it with the heart of flesh. He needs a new nature. He has a sinful nature. He needs a, a new nature. We we need to go from the flesh to the spirit. We need God's God's spirit. 
so, so that that analogy one it, you know the the fact that scripture uses the analogy of being dead to describe us in our sin i think that's a pretty clear picture uh, of the view of depravity that we're discussing uh, another analogy that that's commonly used uh, throughout the bible is is the analogy of being a slave to sin um meaning that we are again we are not we are not neutral to sin but our will our desires are are bound up in sin and the first person to really use this analogy is is going to be is jesus uh jesus in john 8 kind of well it makes this point ex- very explicit and clear um in some of his interaction with the jews it says that uh in John 8:31 so Jesus said to the Jews who had believed him if you abide in my word you are truly my disciples and you will know the truth and the truth will set you free they answered him we are offspring of Abraham and have never been enslaved to anyone how is it that you say we we will become free Jesus answered them truly truly i say to you everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin the slave does not remain in the house forever. The son remains forever. So if the son sets you free, you will be free indeed. So Jesus describing our relationship with sin, it, it's not something that, that mildly affects us. It's something that we are, we are in bondage to. We're, we're in bondage to. Um, our, our, our will is even, is even, is even bent on, on sin. It, it's affected by it. You know, the other place Jesus um, kind of talks about this issue, and maybe there's no, no more clear place in the Bible, but John 6, 44, Jesus says, uh, again, answering the Pharisees, he says, do not grumble among yourselves. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. Um, the final analogy of that, uh, Romans 6, Paul talks about how we were once slaves of sin and have become slaves of righteousness. So th- that's, that's a lot. Um, that, that was a lot of scriptures. I, I hope that, that you, know, you, you can kind of see the pervasiveness of this. And I, ju- I just hope that when we think about our sin and when we view ourselves in light of what scripture teaches... Uh, we we understand and see that that sin affects every part of us. It affects our mind. It's affected our will, our desires, uh, so much so that apart from God's grace, fully, completely God's grace, we are unable and unwilling to submit to Christ. Unable and unwilling. And this has been the the, the historically the orthodox view of the church. Uh, the early church fathers believe this, like we talked about with Augustine. Um, the, the Pelagian views, the, the denial of original sin, the uh, denial of the effect of the fall on us what was denounced as heresy very early in the church. Um, as, as we get to the Reformation and, and through all that time, these, these issues surface again and, and become really prominent. And uh, in the Reformation, we get maybe even a, a more clear picture and definition of some of these doctrines and you know when, when we when as, as I hope you notice today when we look at the scriptures and we analyze what the scriptures say about us in our in our fallen sinfulness 
uh, that th- we should be very humbled by this and, and realize the amazing work that God does in salvation. Devin, anything that you want to add to that as well? I think it's hard to deny when you look at Scripture the reality of total depravity. The ch- as you said, the church has affirmed it throughout the history of the church. Scripture makes it clear. And even when we're talking about um, the differences between Arminianism and Calvinism, uh, we all agree in total depravity. The question is, again, like I've said, middle knowledge. And the question is, uh, how is God's grace applied to us? And so that's, that's what you'll get at when you get to the other doctrines um, of grace. But if it's all right, I'd like to take just a couple minutes and and talk about some implications and some misunderstandings of total depravity. Um, a few implications. First, this means that human total depravity means that humans are not basically good. And if you look at the state of like evangelical theology today, I would think I in in fact, um, Ligonier does these polls. And I don't know, this is not the newest poll, but one says that 70% of professing Christians in America express the belief that humans are basically good. And I've, in fact, I've sat in a youth age Sunday school where the teacher directly said that. And that just, that does not agree with what scripture makes very clear. Humans are not basically good. We are dead in our sin. We are enslaved to sin. Uh, the next thing is that it's important to note that we are not sinners because we sin, but we sin because we are sinners. And this goes back to what, you're, what you were saying in Ezekiel 36 and elsewhere, that we are sinners first, we are totally depraved, and that leads to the actual sins that we commit. And that's an important distinction to make. We are not sinners because we have committed actions. It starts with the heart level, and then it flows out into our actions. It, it's s- sinners by choice, but also by nature. Right. Yep. Right, exactly. Exactly. A- another implication of this is that unregenerate people will never freely choose to embrace Jesus Christ as Savior. A dead person cannot choose life. A slave cannot choose their master. And in Ezekiel 36, it makes it clear that we need a new heart so that we can choose Christ. We need to be born again so that we can put our faith in Christ. Another implication is that no fallen person can be saved without initial divine grace. And even when we, again, I've mentioned this a couple times, but when you talk about Arminianism and Calvinism, we both agree in total depravity. The difference is, is how is God's grace applied to us? Uh, and that's that's what uh, Lord willing Jackson will get to. Just a couple more things here that some some misunderstandings of total depravity. Uh, here's a misunderstanding: fallen, unregenerate people have no good in them and never do any good things. Uh, this is this is a common misunderstanding of what total depravity means. Um, this would be true if God let fallen people take its course without inner any intervention, but Reformed theologians make a distinction between common grace and special grace. 
common grace is God's grace that is given to all, and it's not salvific, but it's given to all. Uh, a perfect example of this is Jesus says that God gives rain to the just and to the unjust, and you need rain to survive, to grow food. Or even, you know, if you're listening to this, and you think about your own life, and you think about, you know, if, if you're like me, you grew up in a, in a family with two parents, in a family that um, stressed great, um, well, well that, that guided you and, and, and taught you what is right, generally, and what is wrong. And God, God has put guards in place, such as government and family and all of these things, to help, to actually to restrain us from our desires, mm -hmm. from, from the, the wickedness of our hearts. God has put so many things in place to restrain sin in the world. And, and that is just a, a, a picture of God's common grace. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Praise God for his common grace to all of us. But we make the distinction between common grace and special grace. Special grace is the grace of God that he gives to sinners to make them alive together with Christ, as you were reading and looking at in Ephesians 2. In the world, we see a combination of total depravity, common grace, and special grace. And those categories are the explanation of what we see in the world. Um, yeah. One more misunderstanding that I'd like to just go over real uh, here is... A mis this is a misunderstanding. Fallen, unregenerate people have no knowledge or understanding of God. Um, and I, I think this has been clear throughout this uh, podcast, uh, especially in Romans 1, that God has made himself known to every person. It's not, to use Jackson's uh, analogy that he used, it's not the radio transmitter. Actually, when you were saying that, I've wondered if, uh, have you ever used a radio? <laughs> oh, I've used, I mean, a, a radio, yeah. I just didn't know if uh, you're old enough to use a radio. Yeah, okay. <laughs> <laughs> but it's not the, the transmission of God is not broken, it's the receiver. Uh, and God has made himself known in creation. Um, so that that's just a misunderstanding. So those are just a few things just to kind of clarify and give a well-rounded definition of what we mean when we say total depravity. Yeah, it also doesn't mean... It also doesn't mean that you can't know true things about God. And, and it also doesn't mean that you can't assent to a rational belief in God either. But when the Bible talks about faith, and when it talks about a saving faith, mm -hmm. it is not just merely a rational belief. Um, it, it is something much more than that. It is a spirit-given uh, belief and trust and assurance in Jesus Christ as, as a Savior and a willingness to submit to the lordship of Jesus Christ, and I think, you know, this should, uh, you know, if we look at it, if we look at Ephesians two eight, like I, I think this passage kind of just ends the debate on a lot of these questions. But it says, you know, this is kind of Paul's definition of salvation and how it operates. But he says, for by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing; it is the gift of God. It is the gift of God. What is the gift of God that, that he's talking about? The grace and the faith. The, the, the gift of faith and, and a saving faith is a, is a gift of God. Uh, it is a work of the Spirit of God. It is not a work that man does. Man does not assent himself to a saving knowledge and a saving faith in Jesus Christ. But the, sp 
but the Spirit of God implants that in his heart, gives him a new heart mm-hmm. and a new spirit, like Ezekiel 36 says. Uh, the saving faith in God uh, is something that that is is a gift of God. As, as verse 9 says, not a result of works so that no one may boast. So the result of all of this, um, this whole situation, what we see is that the, the when salvation happens, it is entirely and completely a work of God and that God is the one deserving of all of the glory and all of the honor uh, and all of the praise responsible for that salvation. When, when we say that that man is, is is totally depraved, that he's that he's sinful in every aspect of his being, and we say that God has rescued him out from that, that, that God has sent Christ to save him from that condition and, and to free him from his own sin, that is something for which which God gets all of the glory for. It is not something that, that sinful man in his um in his heart chooses, and it is not something that rests in him or his will, or his desires, or his intellect, or any of those things. It is a work that is that is accomplished by the grace and the mercy of God, and one for which he gets all the glory. So I think that's kind of going to wrap up uh, this episode. Devin, I just want to thank you again for, for joining me on here. Uh, appreciate that, and I know that listeners do as well. So thank you. Yeah, it's been a joy. And if you believe what we're teaching you should be the most humble person that you know. just want to conclude with that again. This should lead to humility and worship. It should. You know, like we talked about at the beginning, when we understand humanity and we look at this light, look at us in this light, we should be greatly humbled. Um, And as we talk about next week, you know, we're going to see what what God has done about this. Mm. We're going to see what God has done about this problem of sin, and we're going to see how God has purposed to save an uncountable multitude um, and he is he is elected to salvation, an uncountable multitude of people, and that he he accomplishes that. And we're gonna we're gonna jump into that and, and, and discuss a bit of that. So thank you guys for listening. I hope that this is uh, at the very least stirred you on into some deep thought, um, hopefully into some into into some more Bible study, and into some more th- more just thinking about about these things and, and thinking about ourselves and who we are and and the glory of God and salvation. So thank you guys for listening. I hope you come back. Um, Yeah, we pray that this would bless you. And uh, wherever you are and and are hearing this now, we pray that you would have a blessed day. So thank you.